said in Matthew 28 verse 19, Go therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Welcome to Go Teach All Nations, bringing you Christ's teachings through Australian and international speakers. And here is today's presenter, Pastor Ashley Smith. Before we open the scriptures this morning, I invite you just to bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we just invite you yet again, Father, to speak to us. Father, we recognize that we are but dust, the scriptures say. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? Father, we ask that you visit us today. That, Father, we may see Jesus is our request in his precious name. Amen. We're up to uh, sermon or topic number five in our um, series on the pillars. Uh, last week we looked at Sabbath. The week before that we looked at a sanctuary. The week before that it was salvation and then scripture. And so today we're looking at the state of the dead. If I can get my PowerPoint um, happening. So state of the dead, what happens when you die? I mean, this is a question that touches all of us and has probably touched all of us or definitely has touched all of us at some point in our life journey. We have either experienced somebody who has died or we've seen the effects of death. This comes to all of us. And, you know, the thing with death is we don't like it because of two main reasons. I mean, death is inevitable and death is final. When you die, you die. There's, it's a finality in death. And so across the spectrum of humanity, whether you're religious or not, there's this great aversion towards death. And that's a natural thing. It would be quite sadistic to long for death or to look forward to death or to wish for death. But there's this aversion to it because of the finality of it and how inevitable it is. Every single second that ticks by in the day, we're getting closer and closer to death. That's a lovely thought this morning. But it's true. And the thing is, when it comes to death, there's questions that just need to be answered for us. Because when you're confronted with eternal realities, and to be honest, we're confronted with eternal realities each and every day. It's life or death. We need to ask those eternal questions. Where will we be for eternity? Will we exist or will we not exist? And the thing that happens so often in society is we can become so focused with so many different things that we don't actually ask those eternal questions. But there's a great fascination of what happens next. So there's a great desire to know what happens next. And in fact, I was doing a little bit of research in preparation for this and I came across this place in Arizona. It's in Scottsdale, Arizona, and it's a cryogenics lab. So basically, if you're not aware of what cryogenics is and what cryogenics does is, you know, they freeze the body. They actually inject it with liquid nitrogen with the goal or the intention that when science catches up, that they will be in the box seat. They'll be in first class, ready to be brought back to life again. Now, with the way the world is going, I don't know if I would really want to be brought back to life in the whoever knows how far in the future it's going to be. And maybe you can't afford the $200,000 that it costs to get your whole body frozen for the anticipation of that one day when medical science catches up. If you don't want to do the whole body, then there's the $80,000 option, which means that as soon as you die, a neurosurgeon comes in and takes your brain and freezes your brain with the intention of taking some of your DNA and then cloning your body and giving you a body when you come out of whatever, you know? 
There's this great anticipation for what happens next just by this. People are sinking their money into these things because people want to live forever. And it's not just this. You know, you think of the old tale of the fountain of youth and the search for the Holy Grail and all these kind of things. There's this idea that we can somehow cheat death or we can somehow bypass death. In fact, when you look at the, the, the deathbed and what was said on the deathbeds of many different people, Edward Gibbon, who was, a, who was an agnostic, he wrote The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. On his deathbed, he says these words. I'm on that screen, but this screen over here. This day may be my last. All is lost finally, irrevocably lost. All is dark and doubtful. Remember, there are eternal realities. And when you're confronted with those eternal realities, you begin to ask eternal questions. Where am I standing and where am I headed? You compare those final thoughts and those final sentiments to the final thoughts of a man by the name of John Wesley. He says in his last words that he says, the best of all, God is with us. Do you see a little bit of a difference between those two kind of responses in the, in the midst or in the very mouth of death? One is hopeless and one is hopeful. Now people may say that the hopeful response, well, people not of our persuasion, and maybe you may not be Christian here today. And it may appear to be pie in the sky, it's hopeful thinking, it's wishful thinking, but is it really true? Is it really reality? And I want to put you today that it is. That what he was hoping for and what he was anticipating was not just this wish and there's anticipation for something that never truly was real. But something that was as true and as real as my very body here this moment is real. We do not believe cunningly devised fables, church. The tomb of Jesus Christ is empty. He has conquered the grave. And because he has conquered the grave, you too will conquer the grave as well. This is the great Christian hope. That death is not the end. Yes, we sleep until the resurrection of the Lord when he comes again to take us home. But death is not the end. And while we mourn at funerals, we do not mourn as those who have no Every single person in this room knows of somebody and they may be closer to them than others, but they know of somebody that they have lost. The great Christian hope is that not only will we see Jesus and spend eternity with him, but we will be reunited together as a family, never to be separated again. This is the hope, church. This is the hope. And we possess this hope in earthen vessels. Eternal realities make you ask those eternal questions. And those eternal questions will come one day. We have no control over when our time is up, do we? Wouldn't it make sense to ask those eternal questions now? Instead of delaying the inevitable and saying, I'll sneak in right at the end, wouldn't it make sense to answer those questions in my own life? Where do I stand with God and where am I now with him? Wouldn't it make sense to answer those questions now? Now, I'm not saying this from the perspective that we can have no assurance of our salvation. We can have assurance with salvation, but I'm coming from the perspective of those that may be here today that don't have a firm foundation, that are not secure where they're presently standing, that they're one foot in and one foot out, or maybe they're both feet out. I'm, I'm saying 
saying it for you guys here today, and even not just for you, maybe for those who are on the inside who have a relationship with Jesus Christ and are walking with Him. Don't become complacent with your journey with Jesus. Continue to spend time with Him to know Him and to make Him known. These eternal questions will come one way or another. Why is there such a desire to live forever? In fact, the majority of the world believes that we live forever. There's a small minority of the atheistic mindset that believe that we don't. But the vast majority of the world is religious and they believe that life continues on in one way or in another. So the majority of people in the world believe that there's a forever. The minority don't. But why is there this great desire, even in the religious, in the irreligious world, to live forever? I mean, there was a song called Forever Young. And when I was um, in year 10, there was a bunch of guys in my class and they had a car accident just south of Byron Bay. You may remember this if you were in the area in 2005 or six or something like that. And there was five in the, the car and the, the guy was driving and, and he had a crash on the way back from a party and four of his mates died in the car. They were in my class. And he, the driver, was the only one that survived. He was on his red peas. And I remember the school just went into a bit of, um, it paused for a while. We had counsellors that would come in that were meeting with the students. The principal resigned. It was just, it was a crazy season at school. And I remember when the funeral came, you know, all my mates in my class were getting these tattoos of the Southern Cross and the words, forever young. And at the funeral, that song was played, Forever Young, I Want to Be Forever Young. Do you really want to live forever, forever, forever young? There's this concept or this thought that we want to live forever. Why is there a desire for eternity? Why is there a desire or yearning for forever? The Bible tells us in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity in their hearts except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. The reason why we long for forever is because forever was put here. We look for more than what this life can offer is because we were made for more. Simply put, we long for more because we were made for that very thing. We have a void in our heart that is the size of eternity, that can only be filled with he who is eternal. And that's Jesus Christ. And I don't, it doesn't matter where you come from, what you've done or who you are or what, whatever you've, you've been in your life. There's one thing that is sure and it's not just death and it's not just taxes. It's the fact that we all have that void that can only be filled by Jesus Christ. And you can try to plug it with every single little thing. But I can tell you the very truth here this morning that none of those things will ever satisfy and can never satisfy because it's only he who has made your heart to desire who can fulfill those desires of your heart. Because he is the desire of every single heart. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 7, it says that we seek after honour, we seek after glory, and we also seek after immortality. Now if we seek after something, what does that mean? Does it mean that we possess it? When I play hide and seek with my daughter, when does the seeking finish? When she's found me. And so if I just want to kind of keep her preoccupied for a while, then I'll just hop in the car and drive away. She'll be seeking me for a while. I never do that, by the way. But we continue to seek and to seek and to seek until we find. When do we find immortality, church? 
It says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says, when this mortal puts on immortality, when this corruptible puts on incorruption, it's at the last trumpet, when the trumpet sound goes forth, the dead are raised incorruptible. But that immortality that God gives us on that day is it our immortality. We might possess it, but is it innately ours? We've borrowed it from God. Man never was, never is, and will never be immortal. Our immortality is borrowed from God because the Bible says that only God is immortal. And our very life, our very existence is sustained by the hand of God, which means that if God doesn't exist, then we don't exist. Everything that we are and everything that will be is completely dependent upon Him and His hand. Only God is immortal, but He gives us the gift of immortality. The teaching of spiritualism is that immortality is within you. You innately possess immortality. You have an immortal soul. That's the teaching of spiritualism. Now we're going to unpack the teaching of spiritualism today and what it means and we're going to have a look at both different angles. But spiritualism is more than just wizards and wizardry and mediums. It's more than just that. And we're going to explore that today. But before we can do that, we need to unpack what we as human beings, what the nature of man is actually like. And we go all the way back to the book of Genesis. Now, I don't know if you've noticed that through the course of these kind of these topics on the pillars, there's been a book that we've constantly been referring to. And which book is that without looking at the screen? Why do you think we've constantly been going back to Genesis? Because Genesis is the great textbook of theology. It's where we see all these ideas, all these truths in the first three chapters as well. Just laid the foundation. If you want to understand what the Bible teaches, then you have to read the book of Genesis. Particularly those first three chapters. They're so formative for our faith. And in the second chapter, we see how God was made. And I read this last week from the perspective of Sabbath, but let's just have a look at it from how man was made. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And man became a living, other translations will say living being, but I like the King James and how it renders it here because it renders it very accurately. It's easy for me to explain. There are two things that constitute a soul, which you are. What are those two things, according to the text here? All right, loud voice. What's the first one? Dust. What's the second one? Breath. Those two things. God forms man from the dust to the ground. And then he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. So when Adam, man, when he was formed just from the dust of the ground, was he a soul? Yes or no? No. When the breath was still in the mouth of God, was Adam a soul? Yes or no? No. When these two things combine, the breath and the dust, Adam then becomes a living soul, yeah? You don't have a soul. You are a soul. And that's a really important thing to know because the Bible says that the soul can die. And the teaching of spiritualism is that soul is immortal. The soul cannot be destroyed. It finds its way all the way into Greek teaching that has kind of been incorporated into Christianity today. But right from this verse, we see how man was made. And right in this teaching of Scripture here, we see that the fundamental teaching of the nature of man is that man is dust and breath 
And with those two things separated, you don't have life. I'll give you kind of another perspective. Jesus says, it's a famous verse, it's the famous verse in all scriptures, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have... How can the soul therefore be immortal if those that don't believe in Jesus perish? And how can somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus and rejects Jesus have everlasting life, albeit not in heaven, but rather in hell? I mean, the very teaching of an eternal burning hellfire is not just abhorrent to think that the sins of a lifetime would constitute an eternity worth of suffering. But the worst out of all of that is the thought that somebody can have eternal life outside of Jesus. And that God somehow sustains the wicked in this state of torment forever. The Bible doesn't teach that, guys. The Bible says that a soul is made up of what? Dust, breath. We are souls. Souls are not disembodied spirits floating around. Satan's first lie to humanity was what? The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. You will live forever. You will not surely die for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, talking about the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, we see what spiritualism is in these two verses. Now, remember what I said before. What do we often think spiritualism is? And we think rightly so. Spiritualism is that the soul is immortal which teaches that when you die, you either go up or you either go down. You can't kill the soul. And that's the kind of spiritual, religious kind of perspective of the, the soul and spiritualism. But there's also something else in this verse that teaches us what spiritualism is. Can you see what it is? And when you got it, yell it out. Anyone got an idea? The first one is you shall not die. The second one is you will be... What does God possess that we don't possess? Spiritualism isn't just the thought that you can live forever. It's also putting man at the center of everything and making himself his own God. And you know what the problem is? When we look at the book of Revelation, spiritualism, Catholicism, and fallen Protestantism, it's those three, isn't it? But when we look at spiritualism, guess what we tend to look at with spiritualism? It's just the religious kind of angle of spiritualism. But it's more than that. Spiritualism is also when we deify humanity and we glorify the progression of human achievements, human accomplishments, human victories. And we place humanity, we place mankind and his accomplishments in the place that only God deserves to be. Now, there's nothing wrong with advancement of thought, advancement of intellect, advancement of technology. There's nothing wrong with those things. Don't get me wrong. But what is wrong when we substitute man's wisdom instead of the wisdom of God? Because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Knowledge. When you look at this verse here, what does it say? You will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will have human thoughts and human understanding. But the fear of the Lord is beginning of knowledge. When humanity shifts itself from God and pushes God away, guess what problems we're going to run into? 
man's going to elevate himself and put himself in a place that only God belongs to be. And if you look at the course of history, you see it. Nebuchadnezzar stamping into the bricks of Babylon his own name, may it live forever. Augustus Caesar, he took the title son of God. You see it throughout history. Alexander the Great, I am God, worship me. You see these thoughts, whenever man puts himself at the centre, he desires to be deified. And we do it with civilizations. So spiritualism isn't just the whole kind of spiritualistic world, it's also the idea where man puts himself where only God belongs to be. And we see this from the great controversy as well, a book written by Ellen White, one of the founders of our church. Satan beguiles men now as he beguiled Eve in Eden by flattery. See this whole kind of pride, make yourself your own God? By kindling a desire to obtain forbidden knowledge, human knowledge, by exciting ambition for self-exaltation. It was cherishing these evils that caused his fall and through them the aims to compass the ruin of man. Ye shall be as gods, he declares, knowing good and evil. Spiritualism teaches that man is the creature of progression, that it is his destiny from his birth to progress, even to eternity towards Godhead. So you can pursue spiritualism and not even be spiritual. When you put yourself in the place of God and you worship what man does instead of worshipping the living creator. And in Revelation chapter 13, we see this, this final conflict. We see it in Revelation 13, this impending conflict, which is before us, church. And we see that there's two key players in this final conflict. That you see these two beasts... The first beast we see is this conglomerate beast. It's made up of the beasts that are derived from Daniel chapter 7. There's a bit of a lion in there, a bit of a leopard in there. We also see a bit of a bear in there as well. And we see dragon-like features of this beast. We see that in chapter 1. That's representing Catholicism. And then what we see in the second half of the chapter is we see this other kind of beast that comes up. It comes off from the earth and it's a lamb-like beast. It's communicating that it's innocent in nature, but then it kind of transitions in the verse and says it speaks like a what? It speaks like a dragon. And we see that there's this final moment in earth's history where the issue is over one thing. And what is that one thing? Worship. Who are we worshipping? What are the two choices? God or man? Will we worship God or man? Will we worship man's ideas, man's innovations, man's inventions, man's thoughts, man's ways, man's day? Or will we worship God in his ways and believe that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge? And we come to this moment in Revelation 13 where it says this. And this test of worship is over an image that's erected, it's forced, and it centers around a particular day. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs, which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast. So this is talking about the USA. He deceived those who dwell on the earth. We see this global kind of power. And I mean, we look at, I guess, the political scene today, and does America kind of, does it appear that America has a bit of a, um, a rival? on the scene at the moment. It does, doesn't it? China. And the thing is, 
People are actually saying that China is going to overtake the United States of America. But I'm going to tell you something here this morning. Now, I'm not a prophet, but I'll tell you this. When you have power for such a long period of time, unrivaled power, do you think you're going to let it go lightly? When politicians and leaders of influence in the United States of America, do you think that if you've, you've held power and authority as the world's superpower, dominating power, do you think you're just going to say, oh, well, our day's gone, we're going to ride into the sunset. Do you think that's going to happen? You will fight for it. And you won't give it up. And so that's what we see here. We're not going into a next superpower stage. The United States is that final superpower. And what has he called the earth to do? He granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who is wounded by the sword and lived. He tells others what to do. This is what we're doing, and you're going to do it. At the Tower of Babel, what did God do to the languages? He confused them. Why? Because man was thinking too much of himself. Man had made himself his own God. And in doing that, the natural consequence is always confusion. And so God confused the languages, and in doing so, he really established different nation states. Nationalism has a little bit of a bad, like, <laughs> a bad kind of history. But the good thing about different nation states is that when one nation goes rogue, as nations inevitably have a shelf life, and you know there may be good times, but there's always bad times. If a nation goes bad, guess what the people of one country can then do? They can flee to a, another country as refugees. But what happens when the whole world is a totalitarian regime? There's nowhere to run. In Revelation 13, we see a reversal of the Tower of Babel. It's a universal global power and there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide save Jesus Christ, which is the best place anyway. And we see that this image is made to the beast and he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, just in this verse here, do you see a little, little bit of a similarity to what we just read in the book of Genesis? What do you see? There's two words. There's breath, and what's the other one? There's image. Now, we didn't read the word image in Genesis chapter 2 when God formed him from the dust of the ground, but remember when God said he was going to make mankind? He said, let us make man in our image. So God forms man from the dust of the ground in the image of God, whether that's his exact likeness or his personality, whatever. But then he breathes into him the breath of life, and he comes to life. Here we see this beast doing the miraculous. He's bringing to life. He has creative power, something that only God is supposed to have. It's miraculous. It appears as if God is with him. It appears as if nothing's going to stop this power. But what's the end result? What's the last word? It's death. When God gives life, he gives life. When the beast gives life, it results in death. And that's the consequence of spiritualism. It promises you life, but it gives you death. Spiritualism promises life, but it gives death because it comes from the wrong source. It comes from within. It comes from man. It comes from our ideas. It comes from our authority. It comes from our knowledge instead of God's.
The answer is not within you. The answer is with God. What humanity tries to do is it tries to fill that eternity that God has given us with everything and anything but the only thing that can fill it, which is Jesus. What has he put in our hearts, church? He's put eternity in our hearts. Now, you can go and you can ask Solomon. Think about Solomon, for example. What did Solomon have? Now, you think about it. The Bible says, concerning Solomon, that silver was as common as stones in Israel during his time. Now, that's some crazy, like, you have some crazy amounts of silver. That silver will become inflated to the point where it's just like stones. In one year, he would have 666 talents worth of gold. Now, that's $10 billion today worth of gold. Every year, that's wealth. He had it. What about sex? 700 wives, 300 concubines. He had that too. What about wisdom? The Bible says that his wisdom and knowledge numbered like the sand on the seashore. What about, what about influence? What about power? Well, the Bible says that all the kings from the earth came to listen to the words of Solomon. That's influence. When you look at all the different areas of Solomon's life, he had it all. But yet, what does he say at the end of his life? Open with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and I want to show you this really awesome passage of Scripture. A man who had it all recognises that at the end of the day, none of it it really matters. None of it's really lasting. And it may appear to be good for a season, but at the end of the day, that season will inevitably pass and it will go as quickly as what it came. We have one shot at this life. We have a season of years, 80, 90, 100 if you're doing well, and you may have even less, but at the end of the day, we have a small shot at it, and the things of this world are so fleeting, but they consume so much of our attention that we neglect asking those eternal questions because we become so enamored with the things that don't even really matter. Social media. This is what my life looks like. Communicating what you wish your life looked like, but what it doesn't actually look like to people that you don't even really care about. And then you get upset when people don't comment on your stories or don't comment on your pictures or don't like it. It's vanity. All of it is vanity. And it's not just, I'm just using that as an example. It's all vanity. Snow has this famous phrase, mate. I've quoted you before and I'll quote it again. Snowman says it's all going to burn. It's true. And in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, a man who had it all, this is what he says about his life, and this is the truth about humanity. He says, remember now, in verse 1 of chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes, remember now your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. Remember God when you were young. Don't give God the leftovers. Give God the very best of your life. Verse 2, it says, While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened and the clouds are not returned after the rain. Now, he uses metaphor here to communicate the aging process. Now, some of you may be able to relate to this, and I relate to you as well as I'm aging. 
I feel it. In verse 2, he's talking about the sun, the moon, and the stars not giving forth the light that they once, once did. Eyesight going. In verse 3, it says, In the days when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, your posture isn't as upright as it used to be. You're a little bit bent over. It says after that, when the grinders cease because they are few. Guess what that's talking about? Your teeth fall out. I haven't got there yet. Some of you have, maybe. I don't know. Someone can resonate with this message today. <laughs> you know, like when preachers preach, they're like, I'm speaking to somebody right now. And there's probably someone here. Yep, yeah, yeah, my teeth. Yep, yeah, they're gone. And it says, and those who look through the windows grow dim. It's another expression of you know, our eyesight going. In verse 4 it says, When the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low. When one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of the music are brought low. So when it talks about one rising up at the sound of the bird, it's sleeplessness and being woken up very easily. It also talks about the daughters of music are brought low. The voice changes. Verse 5 it says, Also they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. Now this doesn't relate to, to Nev because I mean he's up on the ladder all the time. But I tell you what, there's fears that come as you get older. And then it says the almond tree blossoms. What colour does the almond tree when it blossoms? It goes white. The hair goes white, if you're lucky. Um, Otherwise you lose it altogether. Um, And then it says the grasshopper is a burden. So things that you could once lift, you can no longer lift. Desire fails, that sexual desire. And then it finishes in verse 5. It says, for man goes to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets. So the man goes to the ground and the mourners go about mourning. And the person that dies has no idea of the fact that people are mourning over them. And then verse 6 it says, Remember your creator before the silver cord is loose, the golden bowl is broken, all the pitchers shattered at the fountain, all the wheel broken at the well. And then verse 7, Then the dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit will return to God who gave it. This complete reversal of creation, yeah? The dust goes back to the earth. The breath goes back to God. And then you come to verse 8. When he looks back, this is a lot of men. Now, is that a kind of a depressing picture? But is it true? Is it true? Now, when you're young, guess what you often think? You think you're invincible. It's not going to happen to me. Well, it's not going to happen to me for a while. But guess what happens? Guess what comes? The grinders are few. The almond tree blossoms. You bow over. The lights don't shine as brightly as they once did. And at the end of it all, what does he say? In chapter 12 and verse 8, he says, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Or as it says in the King James, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's all meaningless. It all doesn't matter. And it all doesn't matter unless you find he who really does matter. Because at the end of the day, everything will be forgotten. The Bible says the living know that they will die and the dead know nothing. Neither have they any more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, their envy is now perished. Neither more is there a portion for them and anything under the sun. It's all forgotten. It all finishes. It all passes away. Maybe not in the first generation, but definitely maybe in the second, third, and certainly in the fourth or fifth. 
It all passes. Is this all that we have to look forward to as humanity? No, because he comes to the very end of the book and he summarizes it and he says, this is the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good and evil. At the end of the day, there is a hope and there's, because there's a hope, there's a way that we should live. Our life matters. And the way that we live our life matters. If there wasn't a forever, then why would it matter how we live today? There's a heaven to win and a hell to shun. There's a God to serve and there's a God to love. And he puts God in the center and everything is meaningless until you find he who is meaningful. And that's the truth of the matter. And life is only meaningful with Jesus. Solomon was satisfied for a time, but it was all temporary. And then he saw it for what it truly was. You go to Rome today and you can actually go down underneath the city to the catacombs. Ancient burial grounds. Now Christians weren't very well off and so they couldn't afford, um, they couldn't afford to actually bury um, their loved ones in cemeteries and so they went underneath the city and there's just miles upon miles of these ancient burial grounds. And above the Christian burial grounds you have these different pictures that are drawn that represent the Christian faith which communicates to us that from the beginning of the message of Jesus there was this understanding that it all wasn't meaningless but it was meaningful. And that there is a victory through death that Jesus will accomplish when he comes again. And you see this picture just here. I don't know if you can, um, you can kind of make it out. But there's a fish. And next to the fish there's a cup. And there's five pieces of bread on that cup. And so there's a reminder here in this, you know, of the miracles of Jesus when he can make, he can multiply things that don't exist as if they do exist. And then there's a reminder of the communion cup and also the, the, the five, loaf, five loaves of bread and the fish expression of Christianity. Another one that you see is you see this, this symbol of this anchor. And you've got the two fish, which are further symbols of Christianity. And these are all above graves, by the way. They're not, the epitaphs that you have on, um, on headstones, gravestones, they didn't write, really write much. They just had pictures representing what Jesus meant for them. And on these graves, we have the anchor because Jesus is the anchor of the soul. He's the firm, fast foundation. And there's one of my favourite ones is the picture of the, the good shepherd carrying the sheep all the way home. Death is victory for Christians. And you learn a lot about a person when they use their strength, their influence, their intellect in a situation where no one else can in a way that nobody else can. And Jesus gets word one day, and I'm going to use this story to close, Jesus gets the word one day that a good friend of him, his by the name of Lazarus, was sick even to the point of death. And so the servants come and they tell Jesus who's in this, this neighbouring town and Jesus looks at the servant and he says, this sickness will not be unto death but that the glory of God may be revealed. And so the messenger takes the message back and says, Jesus says that the sickness isn't going to be unto death. Good news. And then the Bible says something weird. It says because Jesus Love them, he stayed where he was two more days. I think that's a bit weird. Because he loved them, he stayed and waited for Lazarus to die. It's interesting. Then after Lazarus had died, he then says to his disciples, okay, we're going to go wake Lazarus up. And the disciples are thinking, if he's unwell, let him sleep. 
But Jesus is like, no, Lazarus is dead. Jesus equates death with sleep. And I just find it's so simple but so profound at the same time because when you think about it, like the thing that really troubles us the most is death. And Jesus says it's just asleep. Because he can wake us up from it. It's just asleep. And he goes, and Lazarus has been in the tomb for four days. And as he comes, as he comes to the cemetery, Martha comes out, and Martha, exasperated, upset, distraught, all the words you want to throw at it, Martha comes out and says, Jesus, if you were here, he would not have died. And then Jesus looks at, at, at Martha, and he says these words. And thank you so much, Bryce, for reading these words for us today, mate. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? If this is all that Jesus ever said, if this was the only record that we ever had of Jesus, if this was it, then he would have said more than anyone else has ever said. I am the resurrection and the life. Nobody else has said that. The one enigma that we face and every single day it dogs us is the thought of death. And many of you have been touched by the stroke of death in your own lives. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one answer to that question that nobody else has answered. I am not just the resurrection and the life. I am the only resurrection and the life. And think about it. When and where did Jesus say this, church? When and where? At a graveyard. At a funeral. That's insane. You imagine attending a funeral. Somebody turns up late, comes down and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. Open the lid. Come forth. You imagine that. That's what Jesus did. He says this at a funeral when they needed it the most. He answers those eternal questions at a place where those eternal questions are considered. He says, I am the answer and I am the only answer to this question. I am the resurrection and the life and I possess it myself. I'm the only one that has the keys and here they are. He says it. And as they go closer, the mourners are weeping and then you have the shortest verse in all scripture. What is it? Kids, what is the shortest verse in all scripture? Jesus wept. It's the shortest verse, but it's the deepest verse. It's shortest in sense, but deepest in truth. Jesus wept. What does it mean that God would weep? It tells me that when I am afflicted, he's afflicted. What troubles me troubles him. It tells me that he cares, that he resonates, and that he was willing to experience He's willing to come and suffer on my behalf and all those pains and all of those sorrows ripple through his body and in the last gasping breath, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows what it's like. He's been there himself and he weeps because what hurts me hurts him. And then he goes to the tomb and he says those words, those three words. What are those three words? Lazarus, come forth. Always wondered why he says Lazarus in front of come forth. It's 
Because if he said, come forth in a graveyard, guess who would have come forth? Everyone. Lazarus, it's your time now, mate. Come forth. And he comes forth. Church, Jesus is the only resurrection and life. Our hope is in him because our hope can be found in nowhere else. Why do we desire eternity? What has been placed in our hearts? Eternity. Therefore our hearts can only be satisfied by he who is eternal. We long for more because we were made for more. And C.S. Lewis puts it so well, he says, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Do you resonate with that? Maybe you've gone to amusements, maybe you've gone to substances, maybe you've gone to relationships, maybe you've gone to social media, maybe you've gone to this and that and you've tried them all out and you still haven't found what you're looking for. Do you know why you haven't found what you're looking for? Guess what the preacher says? Not this preacher, but uh, Solomon. Meaningless, meaningless, all is meaningless until you find your meaning in him. It's the truth. It's the truth. You can ask Solomon, he had wealth, vanity. He had sexual relations, vanity. He had power and influence, vanity. He had pleasure, vanity. All is vanity. Unless you find your anchor in Jesus Christ. And as the scripture says, this hope we have as an anchor of our soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Yet this eternal life is not just an appointed event, church. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. For Jesus, he defines eternal life in a different way to what we would, and, and we're going to close on this. Jesus says that eternal life is What? Eternal life is knowing you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. For Jesus, what is eternal life? It's knowing God. Guess how we often define it? In a quantity of years. Jesus defines it in a relationship. When does that relationship begin? When he comes back again? Now, we can possess eternal life, Jesus Christ, the assurance of salvation, the knowledge that we have experienced the resurrection and the life in one sense in our own lives through our conversion. We can experience that today. Do you want to experience that today? I mean, our mission is to know Jesus and to make him known. Unless we know him, how can we share or make him known to others? And if it's your desire today to say, you know what, I want the resurrection and the life in my own life. 
I want to possess eternal life here and now in knowing Jesus Christ. I don't want to live a life where everything is meaningless and I'm pursuing meaningless pursuits, but I want to live a life that's filled with value, it's filled with meaning, and it's filled with purpose because the eternity in my heart has been satisfied by He who is eternal. If that's your desire, then I invite you to read with me these words on the screen and repeat after me. And this is the testimony. that God has given you eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. You can have the assurance of salvation. The Bible tells me so. If you have Jesus, what do you have? You have life. And as Conrad shared in the lesson, It's a life of abundance. Let's pray. Father in heaven, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Father, you've seen your children here today, along with myself, cry out to you and ask for this very reality in our own lives, that we may know you and that we may experience the life that only you can provide. Father, give us the assurance of this fact that will change the way that we live, will change the way that we walk with you, and will change us as people as well. This knowledge is the greatest knowledge that we can possess because it changes our life. Father, we just invite you in. Take residence within us. And Father, if there is someone here today that may have not given their lives to you or may have been wandering from you but in this moment they recognize vanity vanity all is vanity and they want to come home to the heart of the savior and find the eternity that only he can give them the assurance that only he can provide and the solace and the comfort that comes directly from his hand and father may they take confidence knowing that he receives them as his own he cleanses them as his children and he accepts them into the beloved because whom the son sets free they shall be free indeed. Father, we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This message was made available by the Mwellenbar Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their Facebook page, Wollumbah Seventh-day Adventist Church. This is Sleep Sweetly by Carly Fletcher. Shout
Tip Lady with tips to help make your life more simple, successful and yes, today, full of wonderful surprises. If you take me seriously, these tips will simplify your life and add skills and open opportunities to you that you'd never dreamed could be possible. These tips have blessed my family and me for a long time. I wish you could see one of my favourite spots that is graced by beautiful majestic trees, lovely green grass and a wide picturesque and deep creek that is spanned by a narrow swing bridge. Many years ago, I used to ride my motorbike across that wobbly swinging bridge. I wasn't supposed to, but it was the shortest route to work, so that's the way I went. Memories can be such wonderful catalysts for creative thinking and remembering. Have you ever wondered why some of us grow bigger and bigger and bigger over the years until one day we really look in the mirror and realise we've become obese and wonder how on earth it happened. You'll wonder what that's got to do with the swing bridge, but hold on, you'll see. One word gives us the reason. It's a simple reason, and it starts with C. It's consistency. Consistency. I learned this the hard way. One day, all those years ago, as I putted across that swinging bridge, relishing while I rode a whole block of chocolate, savouring every delicious bite, I remember thinking, hey, this is supposed to be bad for you, but I don't get sick, who cares? 
So I often indulged my delectable desires with such delightful delicacies. But consistently, little by little over the years, I put on some extra kilos that have taken quite some effort to get rid of. Consistency then can be bad. But consistency can be just the opposite. It can be really good. Have you ever wondered why some people can play an instrument and master it and really excel? There's a simple reason and it's got nothing to do with talent. Have you ever wondered why some kids do really, really, really well at school and get all the great marks? There's a simple reason and it's got nothing to do with being naturally smart. The reason starts with C. Consistency in playing that instrument. Consistency in attending school, listening in class, being consistent and faithful in doing the homework, consistent in developing the habit of consistency. So, what do you think comes after C? D, of course. So my next tip has two Ds, and they are daily diligence. It doesn't have to be a lot that you do every day, but it has to be consistent and daily. And it has to be diligent. That simply means to be careful and persistent every day. When you are consistent with daily diligence, you're going to develop what other people call talent. It's absolutely cut and dried. You will. It's a no-brainer. And I know. So my tip number one today is to learn to be consistent in whatever you do. Be consistent in making the right choices, the best choices for your body, for your mind, for your whole being, and in your daily reaching out towards God, because consistency will bring rewards. The second tip is this, do your daily diligence. Now, consistent daily diligence will make you a winner in business, in your home, in your finances, in feeding your body, in everything you choose to do. That's it from the two-tip lady today who loves to share tips to help make your life more simple. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.